0: You're listening to FundFlow, a podcast for emerging managers, offering insights into the journey of new and aspiring fund managers seeking to have access in a crowded market. Tune in as McGuire Woods partner and host, John Finger, is joined by guests ranging from first-time fund managers to proven emerging managers, experienced LPs poised to back emerging managers, and other key participants in the emerging manager ecosystem. Hear their real-world perspectives and gain actionable tips to help inform your strategy and position yourself for a successful fund closing.
1: Welcome to Flow, a McGuire Woods podcast for emerging managers. I'm John Finger, and today I have here with me Jim Roth, the founder and managing partner of Zamo Capital. Founded in 2018, Zamo Capital is an impact investor based in London, seeking to invest in a multitude of industry verticals. Prior to forming the fund, Jim was the co-founder of Leapfrog Investments and currently is a member of the Investment Committee of the University of Edinburgh Endowment. Welcome, Jim, and thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. So the first place I want to start before we get into some of more of the substance is personally, I love to hear stories as it relates to the forming of a fund and how that fund was named. And we all know some of the great and not so great names out there for private equity funds. But Jim, maybe tell us a little bit about the background of your firm and how it came to pass.
2: Sure. So, um, well, I, I can start off with a name and then I'll tell you a little bit about um, the funds. So the name came, we were sort of searching for names and so much was taken. And, you know, lots of them were that related to sort of growth either taken or quite boring and so we started I uh, started searching in other languages and there's um, a word in in Zulu in Zamo which means you know let us try let us entrepreneur and I um, that's where I got the inspiration from and shortened it to Zamo and so that's where the name
1: uh, came from love it That's so fabulous. Well, I appreciate you bringing up a name that is going to be unique and one that I'm sure all of us will remember. So thank you for that. But turning a bit here, you've had an interesting career path. I noticed you had a doctor of philosophy in economics from Cambridge and then moved into founding, co-founding your first private equity firm and then ultimately where you are today. Can you tell the listeners more about your path and how it led to where you find yourself today?
2: I think I've always um, had an interest in how markets could be used and could be harnessed, financial markets could be harnessed to have a positive impact. So I did my PhD on on microfinance. I don't know if you recall, it was sort of with the Grameen Bank and uh, providing small loans in Bangladesh and, um, you know, looking at the ways in which financial inclusion could um, help promote economic development and have a positive impact. So I've always been really focused on this question about what can markets do and how can they help? How can they really help the process of positive social and economic development? So that's always been my passion. And I started off focused on insurance and micro-insurance, so insurance for um, low-income people. So thinking about how you could get insurance with low premiums, you know, were quality and relevant and affordable and helpful to people, how those could be distributed and how they could be distributed profitably so that you could get investors in them and you could get investment to take place at scale. And I guess I've always been very focused on interventions and an impact that generates commercial returns. And I think the reason for that is because without it, it's very hard to attract any kind of investment and have any kind of impact at scale, meaningful impact at scale. So, that was the sort of the start. So I started off in insurance, and then a, a friend of mine from Cambridge uh, said one of the ways in which we can get capital, one of the the institutions that gets capital or businesses that gets capital to impactful businesses, you know, you could use private equity, and if there were businesses that could be invested in that were having a, a positive impact, but that were also profitable. Then that would be a sort of good basis for a private equity fund. So, together with my co-founder Andy Cooper, we we started Leapfrog Investments. Um, you know, this was around about two thousand and seven, and we started our first fund was a fund that focused on investing in insurance for low income people, so financial inclusion, and that was Leapfrog Investments, and I did that for a number of years. And I left LeapFrog, exited my stake in LeapFrog. And there was sort of had a number of friends and colleagues who were in a similar position where they had had successful careers and wanted to use in private equity and wanted to use their knowledge and experience and capital to help other impact managers grow and to scale impact investing more generally. And that's been my journey and that's the foundation of Zamo Capital. So that's where we are today. So that's how I got here.
1: That's great. So you touched on it a few times. I'd like to spend a little bit of time and talk about how you define impact investing. And and part of the reason for that is it's obviously been an area of focus for a lot of our LP community Um, At the same time, it's not consistently defined or approached by different GPs. So I'd love to hear how you and the firm really define impact investing and some of the characteristics, again, you touched on it a bit, but that make that strategy attractive to you as an emerging manager.
2: That's a really good question. And you're absolutely right. There's all kinds of very inconsistent understandings of what impact investing is. And some of the things that that people sort of often take impact investing to be include sort of ethical business practices, ESG exclusions, so not what you affirmatively invest in, but what you don't affirmatively, what you don't do. And the way that we think about impact investing is fundamentally a form of strategic investment. So there's an LP that wants you to invest in something that's going to generate a particular kind of intentional impact that's measurable that they want. So in addition to financial returns, they also want some other return, either a social or an environmental return that's both specific and intentional. That's the sort of crucial, I think, definition of impact investing. So, and it's sort of different from ESG and that ESG is what you don't do, what you, you know, you don't invest in certain industries and impact investing is what you affirmatively
1: and intentionally do. That's great. So maybe a little bit about what makes it attractive as an emerging manager, with your investment strategy, what are some of the most relevant considerations? There's sort of two,
2: I guess, broad types of of impact investing. And the highest sort of levels, there's environmental impact investing, and then there's social impact investing. And they're both about setting intentional targets to achieve particular outcomes. And Within environmental impact investing, there's sort of two broad categories. One is climate change mitigation. So that includes things like renewable energy infrastructure, energy efficiency, technology, clean transportation. And the next piece is, is environmental conservation. So things like sustainable agriculture, water conservation infrastructure, sustainable forestry, and then you have the circular economy and recycling. And I think between environmental and social, you know, the environmental piece, and we can talk about why in a bit, is by far the most interesting and relevant to LPs, and there's by far the most capital going into it. And we can talk about that in a in, in a second. In terms of the social parts of, of the social kinds of, of impact investing, you have affordable housing, you have financial inclusion, so things like microfinance, microinsurance, you have affordable and accessible healthcare, affordable and accessible education, and then you have a whole lot of and this isn't in the Private equity space, but more in the kind of fixed income space, you have a whole series of different kinds of bonds. So you've got, you know, green bonds, you've got bonds, uh, you know, for public transportation systems. So those are other big areas. So those are all the different areas of, of impact investing. And then kind of thinking through why they're attractive to LPs. Well, I think the first reason and and sort of the most attractive is really the climate-focused investments, climate and environment, but particularly climate and clean energy generation. And that's being driven by a few things. So firstly, it's being driven by huge growth in the sector, driven by concerns about climate change, you know, resulting in all kinds of, you know, vast amounts of government subsidies. The IRA in the US uh, being the key example, likely to be repeated by European governments and other governments, um, so that they, you know, not at disadvantage. So it's a huge growth industry, and private equity is behind it. So I guess that's the first kind of driver. And then, I guess, related to the kind of subsidy piece, there's also kind of discussion and talk about, and well, there are already taxes around carbon and reductions in taxes with climate-friendly investments. And so that's another driver. And then you've got sort of particular things that are happening in some industries. So in Europe, in the insurance industry, There's talk of getting reduced capital. There are discussions underway of getting reduced capital charges on illiquid investments for climate-friendly illiquid assets. And so, again, it's another effective form of subsidy. But that's really kind of, I think, one of the biggest drivers. And then there's sort of other softer, less immediately financial drivers. There is stuff like client demand. So in insurance companies and pensioners concerned about climate change, putting pressure on their pension fund trustees to you know invest more in clean energy. So that's part of what's going on. Then you have in the UK, for example, local government pension funds who where there's pressure on them to invest more in affordable housing. So there's something about meeting the demands of their clients, of the underlying savers if you like. And then I think there's a sort of a piece about wanting to be, you know, good corporate citizens. So I think those are the kind of key drivers, but the largest one by far is in the environmental and climate change space.
1: That's great. Very helpful explanation there and Folsom as well. You touched on it a little bit. How is a firm and you specifically, do you identify and really develop and help develop both on the investment side and then post investment, but these untapped market opportunities, right? Where there is a desire, there is an obvious value proposition but how do you find those relatively untapped opportunities and and develop them through your investment theses
2: we work alongside and invest in in the managers themselves so we invest in GPs and impact GPs to help them scale and what we're looking for GPs in the impact space that you know we believe will be attractive to LPs and will scale. And the way that we think about that is we kind of think about, well, and I have sort of described them, but what are the kinds of spaces that are likely to be attractive to LPs? And then sort of the usual criteria is, you know, you think about selecting fund managers, thinking about who's most likely to succeed and then work with those managers quite intensively to help them scale. And that's what we do and how we
1: work. That's helpful and I think helps kind of redirect. And I think this is where I think it'd be good for us to spend some time with that backdrop. So we'll pick up on, we've talked about some of the drivers of this evolution, this growth, and you've talked about looking for different GPs, how do you differentiate and identify the GPs that you think are most attractive? What are some of those factors, characteristics that you look for?
2: I guess one of the kind of key things that, that we look for is sure that there's a team that has a relevant private equity track record. And I think it's part of the evolution of impact investing is that there's been quite a lot of, there's quite a few impact managers that struggle to attract funding because they kind of think that LPs are going to give them a break because it's impact on returns. And I think for good reason, right? The LPs need the returns, the pensioners have to eat and, uh, So they're not going to get a break. So we look for teams that fundamentally get that. And I think that's the kind of the first, one of the first things that we look for, right? It needs to be completely commercial. It needs to, they need to have a thesis that provides a risk-adjusted commercial return. That's key. And then I think the next thing is really important is a strong sense of you know, fiduciary duty, right? And that that the manager and, and particularly sort of in emerging managers, that there's somebody there that has been a manager before and has exercised that fiduciary duty. Because what we often find is that again, it's sort of managers think that they'll sort of get more of a often think that they'll get more of a break if they're impact managers on their sense of fiduciary obligations because they're doing good for the world. And so, you know, that's more important than their obligations to investors or when there's a a trade-off between the two. And it's really critical that they see their fiduciary obligations to their investors as, as absolutely primary and they focused on that. So that's the other thing that we look for in teams. And then it's the sort of the usual things that, you know, you would look for In any kind of manager, you know, track record, a compelling investment thesis, you know, that they're doing something extraordinary to generate extraordinary returns. Their thesis is seen by LPs broadly. It's it's not just that it, it is an extraordinary investment thesis generating extraordinary returns, but it's seen broadly by LPs as doing that. And then we also sort of look for teams that have come together for more than there's sort of some other reason that they've come together, right? So they all came out of another private equity shop, or there's some other basis that they want to work together, because that just gives a kind of good sense that they more likely to stay together than a team that just comes together because, you know, this is a good way to make money. So that's the other thing I think that we, we look for. So those are the kinds of things that we look for. And one of the things that can be quite hard is particularly in the climate space, which I think is going to, because of, there's such a, a huge flow of, of capital in at the moment, and there's so many new private equity funds investing in the climate space, really finding that extraordinary strategy to generate those extraordinary returns, there's relatively few of them. And uh, that's a kind of a a key thing that we look for. Maybe just as an example, a ton of funds out there that are sort of generalist funds that may have raised funds four years back when there weren't that many competitors by being sort of generalist you know, circular economy funds. But now I think more and more LPs are looking for the manager who, if they're in, you know, building insulation, they want to know that there's a manager that's a real specialist in that, that knows everything about building insulation manufacturing. And they've seen 50 manufacturers that, you know, they think won't work. And they're able, when they see the 51st that does work, to identify it that's the kind of strategy I think that's really going to be very successful and the kinds of managers we like to work with.
1: That's great. So beyond just finding the right talent and team and coming together, what is your approach post-investment, right? How do you nurture and help develop your relationship with those GPs And helping them grow and helping them flourish?
2: Sure. So there are a few things that we do. One of the things that I've often found to be the case is that, you know, having done impact investing now for almost two decades, there's quite a lot of differences between being an ordinary investor investing in, you know, normal firms and an impact investor and you get quite a lot of firms that have a formula where they can where they sort of think well we want to start a a new impact fund and so we'll look at some old deals that we've done that sort of have broad characteristics that are impactful we'll create a, a system of measuring impact you know for these types of deals and then we'll put together an ordinary investment team and we'll go and find some of those deals and that's an impact fund and i think that those firms are going to struggle and so one of the things that we really help firms with is is really working through what it is that you need to do if you've given you know an undertaking that you're going to deliver particular impact whatever it is a measured impact we're going to reduce carbon by x amount or we're going to have provide so many people with quality relevance and affordable health care or whatever the metric is there's a whole range of things that you've got to do all the way through that are different, you know, so in, in multiple different stages as you think through it, right? So in deal origination, you're often building relationships with different kinds of entities you wouldn't necessarily do. And so, as an example, if you were in, in the UK and you were in affordable housing, Fund, you would develop relationships with housing associations, which you wouldn't necessarily do if you were just an, an ordinary residential real estate fund. In diligence, reputational effects, and really the, the extent to which you do reputational and adverse event risks assessment, needs often to be much more thorough and much deeper than you would do in an ordinary investment, right? If you, you know, invest in a sofa factory and the sofa factory goes bust, then you lose your investments. If you invest in a care home for low-income people and the care home goes bust and the elderly, low-income elderly people are homeless, that has a very different risk and reputational profile to an ordinary investment like a sofa factory. So it's really trying to think through those, particularly those adverse risk events, and then all the way through integrating your financial modeling and your impact modeling. So you're setting impact targets and you want to find investments where what makes money also generates impact. If you make money by creating wind turbines, then the more wind turbines you do, profitable wind turbines you create, the more impact you have. And so your profit and purpose are collinear and you want to be able to integrate that and model that and then think about that versus targets. It's kind of all the way through. And then in portfolio management, you want to think about how you work with a CEO of the portfolio company to hit impact targets you want to you know work with the board and have impact as a standing agenda item on the board so there's there's a lot that you need to do that's different and one of the ways that we help managers is is think through what those different things are and help them implement it so that they can deliver both both of their things that they've undertaken to deliver both profit and purpose for their LPs. Those are probably the key things that we're helping uh, managers with having done it ourselves.
1: So obviously an evolving segment of the private equity industry, what opportunities do you see for growth in the UK, elsewhere in Europe, candidly anywhere, but you know, with it being your backyard, maybe we focus there. Where do you see opportunities for the impact investing industry in the future? And then maybe relatedly, any thoughts on how that can benefit, you know, the GPs out there and where they're focused? I think because of the amount of capital
2: that's going into climate and climate related investments, that is obviously a huge area of opportunity. And I think within that, it's about becoming very specialist. It's about doing something quite particular where you really are the experts at that particular thing. So it's moving away from generalists and it's much more about specialists. I guess that's the the first piece. And then there's a kind of an early mover advantage. So looking out for things that are quite obviously likely to get more and more significant, you know, things like impact investors that invest in plastics recycling, the ones that, you know, really get in early, really understand what needs to be done, understand the the characteristics of, of firms that are most likely to succeed. Those are some of the the most interesting ones. I think that's the first, that's where I sort of see the opportunities. It's managers that are specialist managers, the kind of climate and environmental space because there's so much capital will go into that space. And then the next kind of thing that I, I think is the other big opportunity but is pretty hard to get right is that most managers in the impact space tend to be emerging managers where less than sort of $500 billion of AUM and they haven't, they're on, they've got one fund at the most or they raising a fund. So, you know, one or two funds or none, and that needs to be the opportunity set. So LPs tend to be pretty reluctant to invest in that group and I think they're going to need if they want to allocate to the space, LPs are going to get need to get much better and more comfortable at investing in emerging managers. Because I don't see many other pathways to allocating capital at the kinds of scale that many large LPs are looking to do in the impact space.
1: One question that i think is going to be near and dear to to a lot of our listeners hearts right so as as you think about emerging managers it can be with an impact investment focus or not what advice you talked a little bit you talked about sector specialization etc but maybe at a higher level what advice would you give to emerging managers looking to raise a fund in this environment a few
2: pieces of advice to an emerging impact manager. The first thing is to really take the impact seriously and really think through how you're going to deliver and on the target, how you're going to manage your impact, and really think that through because LPs are really becoming more and more wary of greenwashing and impact washing. And so you really need to be credible in that space if you want to raise capital. That's the one piece of advice. And then the other piece of advice is that they're not, it's just to sort of recognize that they're not going to get any breaks for being impact and that they've they've got to do all the things that other managers have to do and more. And it's a tough space to be in. It's potentially an interesting space if you can get it right. It's not an easy one. And I think a lot of managers that come in thinking, oh, you know, there's lots of cash going to being allocated to impact at the moment. So I can sort of, you know, put on an impact badge and I'll be able to collect it. I think those managers are going to get quite a shock. So you have to really be genuine and thoughtful about how you're actually going to Deliver what you say you're going to deliver on the impact side and be as good as anybody else on the commercial side.
1: That's great advice. So, Jim, one final question here. This has permeated a good part of the conversation, but I would love, without you giving away all the secret sauce, how do you and the firm stay current with the latest trends? and changes within the impact investing space?
2: I don't think there's sort of any real kind of secret source. I mean, I think it's the sort of, partly it's, you know, our engagements with GPs and keeping up with them regularly, and then they kind of keeping engaged in what's going on in particular sectors. So that's, I guess, one in particular, impact sectors, mm. we attend and speak at conferences quite a bit, and that's that's a pretty useful way. And then media and uh, podcasts like this um, <laughs> would be the other way. That's <laughs> so I get a lot of my information and and stay up to date with the trends.
1: Well, that's a good segue. I know our listeners have have got a lot out of this conversation and. Um, particularly within the segment that you all are specialists in. So, Jim, thank you for joining me today on FunFlow. Pleasure. Sharing your insights, particularly in this segment of the community. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on this latest episode. We hope you join us next time. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Thank you for joining us on this episode of FunFlow. To learn more about today's discussion, please email host John Finger at jfinger at mcguirewoods.com. We look forward to hearing from you. This series was recorded and is being made available by McGuire Woods for informational purposes only. By accessing this series, you acknowledge that McGuire Woods makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this installment. The views, information, or opinions expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those of McGuire Woods. This series should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice from a licensed professional attorney in your state and should not be construed as an offer to make or consider any investment or course of action.